Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A Oracle employee from Turkey was bidding on a government project in Turkey, flew four Turkish government officials to California, supposedly to meet senior executives at Oracle HQ, which I always thought was in California. That's where the meeting was. The meeting was all of 15 minutes, and then the rest of the week, those four foreign government officials were wined and dined with trips to Napa Valley and a theme park in Los Angeles. That was Matt Kelly. In this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, Matt and I take a deep dive into the Oracle FCPA enforcement action brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Oracle is a recidivist now, and we ask several questions about the enforcement action, explore it for lessons learned, and see where the DOJ might head. Compliance Into the Weeds was recently honored with a W3 as a top podcast in business for 2022. Before we get started with our podcast, a quick word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. You might say we're the recidivist podcasters because today we're talking about recidivist FCPA violators. And today the winning ticket belongs to Oracle, who had an FCPA enforcement action announced last week from the Securities and Exchange Commission. So, Matt, we have another recidivist. We have Oracle behaving badly and behaving badly in ways that perhaps uh, they've done before. You wrote about it. I'm writing about it. You want to set the stage for so then we can pontificate. Sure. So this was interesting because, as you said, it was a second time offense for Oracle from the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we all know it's a second time offense because the SEC even put that detail right in the headline of its press release. Clearly, the SEC wanted people to notice that this was a second-time incident for Oracle. What happened in very brief detail is not stuff we have not heard before in FCPA land. It was misconduct that happened in emerging markets in the 2010s. So Oracle had subsidiaries in India and Turkey and the United Arab Emirates. And basically, they invented this scheme of sham discounts and marketing reimbursement plans where the resellers working with the subsidiaries would request these very large discounts and Oracle headquarters would approve them. Of course, the discounts never actually went to the end customer. They ultimately wound up as kickbacks to the customers instead. So to that extent, 
we've heard that sort of dynamic many times before. But when all was said and done, Oracle wound up having to pay $23 million in fines and penalties. Out of the $23 million, 15 of it was an actual monetary penalty. The other, what is that, $8 million or so, that was disgorgement, that was interest, all the other usual stuff. But what is especially interesting is the recidivist angle here is that in 2012... Oracle had also settled with the SEC about bribery and corruption in India. And in that instance, they paid only $2 million compared to the $23 million this time around. But back then, I think it was a different sort of a scam where they were using, I think it was distributors who were selling licenses overpriced, and then some of that money was parked in secret accounts or something. It was not quite like the slush funds that we have seen this time around, as I understand it. But Oracle did not get a compliance consultant or a monitor or anything like that. It did not even have to admit to the findings in the SCC settlement order, which it did not do. We had the typical neither would confirm nor deny the findings. But everybody is very curious because the Justice Department said just a couple of weeks ago that recidivist behavior will be looked at very sternly. Now, that was the DOJ, not the SEC. DOJ has not yet taken any action against Oracle for this. We don't necessarily know that they will. But here we all are wondering, are we going to see the Justice Department come out swinging against Oracle because it's a two-time offender? I don't know, but that's uh, the nickel tour of the case. The prior 2012 Oracle FCPA enforcement action in India actually had a similar bribery scheme mechanism because it was payment of money into the for advertising. What we did not have in the prior order was a detail of how the pot, the slush fund was generated as we had in the 2022 order. So we even had a similar bribery scheme in the same country yet again. Before we get to the juicy stuff that you ended with, Matt, I thought there were some important lessons for policies and procedures, because as you noted, there was a policy in place. The procedures seemed to be somewhat lacking. The policy basically said there were for discounts given to distributors, it's a sliding scale of internal corporate review. If it is at a level which None of these levels were named in the order, but at some low level, individual business unit could grant the distributor a discount. As the distributor discount level increased, they had to have increasingly higher level. It appeared a second level was at a broader geographic region because one of the approvals was given by a Oracle employee in France. And then we had final highest level of discount approval had to be given by the corporate home office, which, to my shock, I found Oracle's headquartered in Austin, Texas. I always thought it was a California corporation. But another Texas FCPA recidivist. What are we going to think about that? The policy was substantive and well thought out. The procedure, however, said that when you submit this, you are supposed to attach documentary evidence supporting whatever the claim or basis for the discount is. However, the reviewer who could review that information had no ability to request that information. And that almost seems counterintuitive, but the way it worked out was 
you could submit a request with no supporting documentation and you are within the policy. And the reviewer could approve being within the policy. It really speaks to if you're going to require documentation for approval, you have to have a mechanism to enforce that requirement. And that enforcement mechanism is non-approval of a request without appropriate documentation. So I thought that was a lesson, certainly for the compliance professional, in the policies and procedures and perhaps internal controls. Did you see anything else in that part of the order, uh, which we could point out for our compliance colleagues? You know, the same point jumped out to me, actually. A lot of the third-party risk apparatus Oracle had in place, like at an abstract level, looked pretty good. The subsidiaries could not work with any third parties that had been, say, removed from the Oracle Partner Network, which is a big network. And to get into the Oracle Partner Network, you had to go through this due diligence process that was supervised globally to assure due diligence standards across the entire enterprise. That's all pretty good. But Tom, yeah, to your point there, you could provide that documentation to that, yes, we want to offer this discount for all the approvers, but the approvers didn't necessarily have any ability to require that. And everything unravels right at the end. I have talked about this before, that it's the importance of documentation that you really want to design policies and procedures so that when you do grant something that might seem excessive or you want to approve an override of internal controls, I'm not opposed to any of that per se, but you want enough required documentation. So that decision to grant the big discount, to override the internal controls, that sticks out like a sore thumb. Anyone will be able to see it. Anyone would be able to understand your logic in deciding to grant that issue, whatever it was, and you wouldn't be able to hide it. And others would be able to see that this looks like a whitewash and I'm going to call the hotline. I've talked about that many times before, whether it is on management's use of important estimates for financial metrics or something going into the 10K or the 10Q could apply just as easily here about granting discounts to third parties or to resellers. It's all about, do you have a documentation requirement, not a request, a requirement that will force everybody to lay it all out and nobody would be able to question it. Oracle did not have that. And here we are. Um, And we should say there's one other juicy little thing here is that to top it off after all of that third-party shenanigans and resellers and requests and not all of this other stuff, we have a good old-fashioned junket included in the settlement order for foreign government officials. Apparently, a, a Oracle employee from Turkey was bidding on a government project in Turkey, flew four Turkish government officials to California supposedly to meet senior executives at Oracle HQ, which I always thought wasn't California. That's where the meeting was. The meeting was all of 15 minutes. And then the rest of the week, those four foreign government officials were wined and dined with trips to Napa Valley and a theme park in Los Angeles, which sounds to me like Disneyland, but they don't say which theme park. But come on. It's a week-long junket to meet with Oracle for 15 minutes. This happened in 2018, not in 2005, when we didn't really know it was illegal or not or in bad taste. And it was Oracle's second brush with FCPA issues. And we have this junket thing that just, you got to be kidding me, that happened. 
So we would be remiss if we did not include that eye, eye roller of a bit of misconduct in this case. Before we get to the recidivist issue in a little more detail, there's a, a couple of other lessons I think were important for the compliance professional, and that's what led to the final order of $15 million penalty plus disgorgement and, of course, no corporate monitor or oversight because the order specifies that Oracle self-reported a certain unrelated conduct, the remedial action it took and the cooperation it afforded. That cooperation included turning over its internal investigation, voluntarily providing translation of key documents, and facilitating staff requests for interview, and then a long list of remedial actions. And Matt, here I'm just going to read from your Radical Compliance blog post because there's a fair level of detail that we don't typically see. Firing employees, including senior managers involved in the conduct, terminating resellers and distributors involved in the scheme, creating and staffing 15 new compliance roles, both at Oracle headquarters and overseas, enhanced audit functions, introducing measures to improve the level of expertise and quality of the partner network, and substantially reducing the number of partners in the network, implementing data analytics for the compliance program, and revamping the training and communications provided to employees about ethics, compliance, and anti-corruption efforts. And I guess the question I want to pose in all that is certainly self-disclosure, cooperation, and remediation are well known once you get into an investigation. But with that, could that level of detail in the remediation have been something that influenced the SEC's thinking around the penalty involved lack thereof, and the lack of a monitor, and then maybe lead that into the lack of the monitor and how that tracks with what we heard from the DOJ two weeks ago? That's a very good question. I think clearly it did influence the SEC's thinking because they don't have a independent compliance consultant, which is what the SEC calls its version of a monitor. And some of these steps that Oracle undertook are somewhat substantial and not easy to do. They had to staff up 15 different compliance roles. Uh, they revamped the Oracle partner network and cut the substantially reduced the number of partners in the network. And if you're in a professional services firm or a software firm, your partner networks are very important. Yeah, you should revisit them every few years. I guess it's like getting a colonoscopy every five or 10 years, just clean out the network and make sure it's still working. But that is not necessarily easy to do. So there was a lot there. Now, they still did have a monetary penalty of 15 million for a company as big as Oracle. That's not a very painful thing, but it is substantially more than the actual ill-gotten gains that they received. I think the question isn't so much did all of these actions dissuade the SEC from taking some more serious action? The real question is whether it's dissuaded the Justice Department, which has not yet weighed in on any of this. I have no idea if the department will or when it will. I would be really surprised if it didn't. I, they talk so much about recidivism. Now we have a recidivist offender in front of us. What are you going to do, Justice Department? And that seems to be my big question about this case. Let's explore that question because it's the big question. So we have a enforcement act, prior enforcement action, same or sim similar conduct in at least one of the same countries. Yet, according to the Monaco Doctrine, once again, as you noted in your blog post, that may not be as persuasive or that significant because it's more than five years ago. 
So that's question number one I want to put out there. Should you look at length of time or quantity and quality of a prior enforcement action if we have same or similar conduct in the same country? Somebody didn't get the memo. Don't use advertising funds to pay bribes in India. And should that actually be a bigger black mark? But we have nothing from the SEC around the DOJ's mandate that the updated or enhanced compliance program has to be in place and tested as well. Juxtaposing of that, I was impressed by the level of detail listed in the SEC order about the remediation. And I just have to wonder, was that something the SEC found persuasive and did they, typically, the orders don't have everything the commission received from a party. The order is a negotiated settlement in terms of what's presented to the public. But maybe the SEC really saw an effort by Oracle to not only clean up its side of the fence, but make sure this didn't happen in a reasonable way going forward so that an independent compliance consultant was not needed. you got to think through that specifically Lisa Monaco, the deputy AG, she said that civil actions like this one that are more than five years old. And so that was 10 years ago that the prior civil action happened in 2012 that will be accorded less weight, quote unquote. So is, does that mean no weight? Does that mean some weight? Does that mean, uh, wh what does it mean? We don't necessarily know. But she did say that prior acts that are civil enforcement that are more than five years old will be less consequential. Okay, we have that. I am hard pressed to believe that the SEC has not at least talked with the Justice Department about this case and the facts thereof. And maybe they know some things about uh, this case that were not disclosed in the order that may have been passed along to justice. So I like... If the Justice Department took no action at all, I think that would leave a lot of us scratching their heads. I know at least some compliance officers I've talked to about this case who have said that they hope the Justice Department nails them. Seems a little bit strenuous of a position to take. I don't know. The department either wants to scare us or it doesn't. If it does not take any action here, then I think a lot of us would wonder, what are we worried about? Or tell us why you didn't put out some sort of declination to prosecute that really elaborate. And if it's because Oracle has done so much with its compliance program, I suspect Oracle would be happy to have the Justice Department put out that declination order. But I just don't know. I Like I said, there's too many variables here, but this seems like we have talked about recidivism too much for the very first recidivist case after that to wind up being a pile of nothing. Just a matter of waiting to see what actually does come. You know, I'm not sure... I can say anything pithy or unpithy that would top that. Perhaps that would be a good place for us for to end this podcast with the continued notation. I think we're going to have the opportunity to revisit this in the future, Matt. I think so too, Tom. It's good talking to you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I've got a special five-part podcast series running on innovation and compliance about the intersection of supply chain and compliance. We take a look at ESG drivers, product compliance, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, the Scope 3 Emissions Responses, and Responsible Minerals. This podcast series is sponsored by Ascent Compliance. If you're interested in the intersection of 
ESG and the Supply Chain, this podcast is the podcast for you. Check it out on the Innovation and Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.